welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Let me pray for us as we begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, this week I've been thinking a lot about forgiveness, and I came across this quote from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who once said, Forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. It means rather that the evil act no longer remains as a barrier to the relationship. Forgiveness is a catalyst creating the atmosphere necessary for a fresh start and a new beginning. For the next several weeks throughout Eastertide, I want to give some attention to the concept of forgiveness and the ways that forgiveness plays a role in building the church. It's a key kingdom value that is really challenging, and it's something that we pray for every day, perhaps multiple times a day as we pray in the Lord's Prayer. In today's reading, when we read the book of Acts, we heard this familiar story about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, being a persecutor and then coming into being a pilgrim on the way of Jesus. And God had brought Saul to a place where he learns the truth about all the things that he had done when, by the time he meets this person named Ananias. And Ananias has fears that are answered by a vision given to him by God about what God is doing with this man, Saul of Tarsus. So Saul, who's going to become St. Paul, his ministry begins and it ends in God's grace. It begins with God's grace, it ends with God's grace, and what we find in the middle are are some friends, uh, Ananias and later Barnabas, some friends who trust God, who forgive St. Paul, and who hold him by the hand when he really needs someone to advocate for him. It teaches us, I think, some helpful lessons about the nature of what forgiveness is, and about God's grace. And one of the hopes that I have uh, for our church at Corpus Christi Anglican Church is that we become the kind of community of people that press into the hard work of forgiveness. And not just reconciliation, but the possibility of reconciliation with faith, so that we can hold another person by the hand as they're learning what it's like to walk with Jesus. And and I want us this morning to consider Ananias, actually, not just Saul. I want us to consider Ananias and what he might have gone through in the process of Paul being called into the fellowship of the church. I think he's a model for us of what God can do through people who make a really difficult decision to forgive. And before we go into the story of Ananias, uh, let's look first at Saul. Saul of Tarsus. Here's a man who who we know of earlier in the book of Acts chapter 7, who's mentioned as a young man who's standing by in Jerusalem holding everybody's coats while the Jews kill Stephen. He's called the proto-martyr, this follower of Jesus. 
And that day, when Stephen was killed, it began a persecution throughout Jerusalem. And it says in chapter 8 that Saul actually went house to house, taking not just men, but also women from their homes and putting them in prison. So little did Saul know that um, God had already chosen him. He had no idea. He was was going to be an instrument to bring the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. And then we arrive at Acts 9. Saul is still breathing out murderous threats against those who are following Jesus. And he wants to move just beyond Jerusalem because now people are escaping outside Jerusalem. The movement is spreading. And in his zeal, he wants to go to Damascus, which is a hub in southwest Syria, to go to those synagogues there and bring back followers of the way back to Jerusalem to be tried and imprisoned. The Romans really don't care who people follow. That's not really on them. So what I find interesting here is that the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, this this council, has some kind of autonomous civil and religious authority to actually imprison people. And so Saul asks the Sanhedrin for letters to bring people back from those other synagogues in Damascus to round up all the followers of Jesus to bring them back to Jerusalem for trial and for imprisonment. But when he's on the road to Damascus, we know what happens. He sees this radiant light and the vision is so intense that those who are traveling with him are left without a thing to say. It says they were speechless. Jesus says to him in that vision, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is only a few years after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So even before the New Testament is written, what we find is that Jesus has a solidarity with his body. That anybody who uh, is, is persecuting a follower of Jesus is in direct confrontation with the risen Lord himself. And Saul at this point stands up. And Saul is blind. He can't see where he's going. The people who travel with him to Damascus bring him there. They have to bring him there now. And he's there and he's incapacitated and he's helpless. Saul doesn't eat or drink for three days. There's kind of a period of preparation, a period of penitence. You can think of it as the same kind of penitence that we go through as we prepare for baptism. And as he considers Jesus... He's taking time now over these three days to think about all the false narratives that he's believed um, and how the narratives that he's believed are false. And he's considering all of the, the um, all the things that he's believed at this point to just bubble up to the surface. He needs God to take them and he needs to know what they are. And he's got to consider the hurt and the pain that he's caused people, um, not just those who have been in prison, but their families. And so he's, he's caused a lot of pain in the church for individuals, for families. Everyone knows who he is. And he's got time now to reflect on the ways that he's rebelled against God's love. Right? This God he thought he was serving, and he, he was misunderstood. And he misunderstood God's love. He held hatred against God's created people. God's image. God offers forgiveness in a real way to all people. But the benefits of forgiveness uh, aren't going to be discovered by people unless they have an understanding and agree with God on the offenses that they have committed. 
Once Paul, Saul feels the gravity of what he's done, he is in the place to receive the benefits of the forgiveness of God that's being offered to him. Again, God's forgiveness is offered to all people. The benefits are felt when we can agree with God about what is truly wrong and what we have done that is damaging. That's the nature of confession. So if we start with agreeing with God about the gravity of the offenses that we've done, then we can receive the benefits of God's forgiveness. And if you and I can be forgiven and receive the benefits of that forgiveness, then there is a real opportunity for the miraculous transforming work of the grace of God to have its effect in our lives. And so we, like Saul, we have to go through this constant process of undoing Undoing before God and before others before we can be rebuilt and refortified. And then one of our growth areas then as Christians is to learn and to grow in the depth of what that forgiveness looks like. So that as we pray daily for that forgiveness that we can offer it to other people. Now what it doesn't mean, if we think about forgiveness, it does not mean that we inappropriately entrust people with relational responsibilities that they are not ready for. So there's a caveat on this. If someone has been hurtful and they don't acknowledge and they can't acknowledge the wrong that they have done, then we can offer forgiveness, but that doesn't get rid of the barrier to relationship because the barrier lies with them. And until they acknowledge what they have done, then um, there is not going to be the benefits of that forgiveness. Forgiveness, though, means that you and I are no longer holding on to that burden of all those offenses that were done to us by that other person. The longer we continue to hold on to those things, you can think of it like a fire that's getting bigger. It just it, it burns inside of us. And it's like these, the anger, the besetting sins, they just get larger and larger until they consume us. It's this weight that we carry. And so what forgiveness is, is a relinquishing Forgiveness is a release. It is taking those things that we're holding on to that we are not capable or responsible to hold on to and handing them off because they're not ours. And we're doing all that we can to live at peace with somebody else. But forgiveness starts with God and it starts with us. Even when the benefits of that forgiveness are not actualized in reconciliation, we can still do our part. Ananias, I think, offers us hope for how forgiveness can build up the body of Christ when those benefits are realized in community. In verse 10, St. Luke says that in Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. Now there's lots of church history about Ananias, but from the scriptures we don't really know anything about him. He's never mentioned again in the Bible. But God tells him to go to this man named Saul from Tarsus. And unfortunately... Saul's reputation has preceded him, so that creates a problem for Ananias. Ananias has some really good concerns. He's heard about this man who's ruined the lives of many, many Christians in Jerusalem, and how now he's come to Damascus with the, with the documents that give him authority to take Christians from Damascus and bring them to Jerusalem for the same fate. So those are honest, those are true concerns. So I don't want to minimize Ananias' concerns. I mean, what's at stake here for Ananias is, at the very least, his livelihood. Um, I don't know if he has a family, but his family life is threatened now to be upended. Um, And he is walking into danger for his very life by going to Saul. 
So, the difference, though, between Ananias and us is God actually gave Ananias uh, a vision that he told Saul that Ananias would come. But, even though God gave him that vision, that's still an act of faith to trust that vision. And I would imagine that it doesn't make it all that less fearful, because the stakes are really high in going to Saul. Christians' lives have been impacted deeply by Saul of Tarsus, and, and even if the, the Christians that uh, he knew weren't the ones being put into prison, people had friends. They had relatives in Jerusalem. And I remember that solidarity that Jesus has with his church, those early believers have with one another. So to persecute one is to persecute all. So if Saul's life is really changed, if Saul is really different now, it's going to take time and it's going to take advocacy to actually build trust for Saul as he is brought into Christian community to undo all the negative PR and the ripple effects of his campaigns of persecution. So Ananias was not just chosen to uh, heal, to, to pray for Saul. He was chosen to be an advocate for this instrument of God. God hears all the fears that Ananias lays out before him. And interestingly, God doesn't actually go through them systematically and answer them. What he does is he just says, go. Saul is a chosen vessel for me to carry my name before nations and kings and the children of Israel too. So, in this case, God gives him a a different narrative for what's happening. And forgiveness and obedience then are their big steps of faith on the part of Ananias. And he chooses not to hold against Saul all the things that Saul has done. Which he could have done. What he does is he steps in faith based on the narrative that God gave him, that God is doing. And when he gets to the house, it says that Saul is there and he lays his hands on Saul in verse 17. It's like a type of commissioning that's happening for Saul by this person who's not an apostle. He's just this this follower of Jesus. And that commissioning... When he puts his hands on Saul and he prays, he prays in the name of Jesus that Saul be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he is, and he's healed. And something like scales fall from Saul's eyes, and he receives the ability to see again. Immediately, Saul gets up, and he's baptized. And Ananias becomes a friend and an advocate in the church in Damascus, giving us a beautiful example of faithful obedience And how that can become, that forgiveness and trust can become a platform for the building up of God's kingdom. That the unlikeliest of people now is becoming a chosen instrument of God's kingdom work. So Ananias teaches us something about the nature of forgiveness. So we need to press into the hard work of forgiveness. And we need to do it by faith. So that we can hold the hand of other people as they're learning what it means to walk with Jesus. And I know when we talk about forgiveness, what makes forgiveness really hard is actually the human element, right? It's the other people involved that have deeply impacted our lives. So from Ananias' perspective, he had to be completely honest with God about the fears that he was holding. I think that's a helpful paradigm. We need to be really honest with God about the ways that we've been hurt, the ways that we've been offended Um, And admittedly, I think what was different about Ananias than with you and I is that God gave him a direct vision of what would happen. 
That doesn't happen for me that often. Maybe it does for you. Um, But we don't often get a direct vision about what God's doing. So forgiveness, when two parties are at odds, is usually a longer process rather than just receiving a vision. But we can't offer genuine forgiveness unless you and I are honest and do the hard work of knowing how we've been impacted by the wrongs of others. There is a genuine wrongness that happens. To forgive actually is is primarily, it, it begins with almost an act of condemnation about something because you have to judge something as wrong and hurtful before you extend genuine forgiveness. If it's a family member, we need to work and do the hard work at knowing how their actions have impacted us so that we can forgive. If it's boss or a work colleague, we have to be honest and do the hard work of examining how there was genuine offense so that we can offer real forgiveness. And that's important because you can still forgive somebody for the wrong that they've done, even if they've passed away or if they've moved on and there's no hope for reconciliation in a real-time way, forgiveness can still be genuinely offered. And again, so I want to be careful. I want to caveat forgiveness, too, because there are times, especially when we're talking about uh, trauma or abuse, when forgiveness has to be really nuanced. And so I want to, I put an article on our website on, we have a frequently asked questions page, and under the section about what our child safety policies are, I, I put a paper up there called... Sexual Abuse and Trauma Safety, a Biblical and Theological Reflection. It's a really helpful paper. Uh, It's a conversation between theologians and counselors on how to create a more trauma-informed ministry. And I think they have this really helpful paragraph that nuances forgiveness. And I'm just going to read it because I think it's, it's really good. It says, Forgiveness is not reconciliation and is not contrary to moral or legal justice. Right? So forgiveness is not reconciliation, and it is not contrary to moral or legal justice. An unfortunate popular sentiment among committed Christians is that forgiveness is the same as reconciliation, or that it denies the claims of justice, and that's not necessarily true. In truth, forgiveness is not a one-time event, but rather involves a long process of relinquishing vengeance into God's hands. And that process is going to involve healthy anger. Most important of all, forgiveness does not mean forgetting or just quickly moving on. The choice to forgive is the total prerogative or the sovereign royal right of the one who has been wronged. And it doesn't depend on the offender's repentance, nor means that the wrongdoer deserves to be trusted again. Or that there should be reconciliation, which it defines as being trusted again with a new relationship. So forgiveness is a process. It is a process of relinquishing, of being honest, but relinquishing our desire for vengeance and hatred that begins in God's forgiveness and grace that we ourselves receive when we are honest with God about the things that we've done wrong and receive the benefits of his passion as we pray in the Eucharist. It is not a one and done thing because you and I are continually growing in how our wounds impact us and impact our story and shape us. And that's why forgiveness is going to be an ongoing revelation as we walk with God. But from Ananias, what we take is that it begins with honesty. And when he's honest, God meets him 
with a greater story than Ananias' fears. And that's important. I think God has a greater story for you and for me than the one that our fears tell us. And I think that that's what he often does when you and I are making a habit to open ourselves up to the Lord honestly in his presence and growing in prayer. And as we make a habit of being in prayer and hearing from the scriptures and worshiping with his saints on a regular basis, as we seek spiritual direction, and as we create habits that foster a growing relationship with Jesus, you and I are met with God's narrative of new creation, which is a much better story than our fears tell us, and what our role is in that new creation. The story of, of our wounds is part of the good news of Jesus uh, that is going out to the nations, and God's healing of our wounds. And that's why we can join Ananias in handing over and relinquishing to Jesus those wounds, our desire for vengeance, that create the relational barriers that exist for us. We can join Ananias in walking with others as they are sojourning with God in this life on the road with Jesus as pilgrims. And together, let's sit with others. Let's pray for them. Let's listen to their stories and community. Let's walk with them. And sometimes, as appropriate, let's hold them by the hand as they go through a period of penitence and prayer. And let's be an encouragement as they figure out what it means to walk in this life with Jesus in the context of the church. Something that we all want. And so let us be that for others. Let's pray. Oh God, by the preaching of your Apostle Paul, you have caused the light of the gospel to shine throughout the world. Grant, we pray, that having his wonderful conversion and remembrance, we may show ourselves thankful to you by following his holy teaching. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.